Hello and welcome to the podcast, An Overview of English Literature, the perfect place for book lovers and enthusiasts of the classics of English literature. My name is Dr. Fernanda Moura. I'm a literary scholar, English literature teacher, passionate about 19th century literature, founder of Books and Culture, where I offer online literature courses and workshops. And this is episode 48 of the podcast. Halloween has passed. We are now in November, but we still have one more story to go to complete our seven days of Halloween. As Mary Shelley writes in Frankenstein, and I quote, it was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. Our accomplishments are of a different, very different kind. Today, to finish this Halloween project, we'll read a story that is scary for different reasons, not necessarily supernatural. It deals with a comet that is supposed to hit New York, and for that reason, even more terrifying. Let's talk about The Comet, written by the American author William Du Bois. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Hall welcome to the seven days of Halloween and happy Halloween. And the best way to celebrate this date is uh, by reading a spooky short story. So far, we've read five short stories. We've read Roald Dahl and Edith Wharton and Anton Chekhov um, and Guy de Maupassant. So different um, texts and different authors from different places and different periods of time. And today we're going to read the story The Comet by William Du Bois, an early example of science fiction written in late 19th century, early 20th century American literature. So if you're not familiar with, with William Du Bois yet, he was an American sociologist, socialist, historian, and fiction writer. And an interesting fact is that he was the first African-American to get a doctorate degree from Harvard University, uh, which is really nice. He wrote a lot about um, African-American history um, and black history in the uh, United States post-Civil War. And The Comet is a very interesting story um, science fiction, um, dystopian literature, but also that also deals with um, social criticism and especially um, racial issues. So it emphasizes um, the racial relations in um, post-Civil War United States and how a supernatural event could affect those relationships. Um, it was first published in 1920 and here we are. Uh, you can find it online. It's a very interesting piece of literature, The Comet. So let's read it together and we can uh, discuss uh, its main themes. So let's get started. He stood a moment on the steps of the bank, watching the human river that swirled down Broadway. Few noticed him. Few ever noticed him save in a way that stung. He was outside the world, nothing, as he said bitterly. Bits of the words of the walkers came to him. The comet, the comet, 
Everybody was talking of it. Even the president, as he entered, smiled patronizingly at him and asked, Well, Jim, are you scared? No, said the messenger shortly. I thought we journeyed through the comet's tail once, broke in the junior clerk affably. Oh, that was Halley's, said the president. This is a new comet, quite a stranger, they say. Wonderful, wonderful. I saw it last night. Oh, by the way, Jim, he said, turning again to the messenger. I want you to go down into the lower vaults today. The messenger followed the president silently. Of course, they wanted him to go down to the lower vaults. It was too dangerous for more valuable men. He smiled grimly and listened. Everything of value has been moved out since the water began to seep in, said the president. But we missed two volumes of old records. Suppose you nose around down there. It isn't very pleasant, I suppose. Not very, said the messenger as he walked out. Well, Jim, the tail of the new comet hits us at noon this time, said the vote clerk as he passed over the keys. But the messenger passed silently down the stairs. Down he went beneath Broadway, where the dim light filtered through the feet of hurrying men, down to the dark basement beneath, down into the blackness and silence beneath that lowest cavern. Here, with his dark lantern, he groped in the bowels of the earth under the world. So this is the beginning of the story, right? So what we know so far is that the protagonist, the he in the story is called Jim and he is a messenger. And uh, we don't know much about him at this point, except that he uh, works this place um, and that normally no one notices him, that the world does not notice him unless in a way that's done which already raises um, awareness here, uh, but there's nothing definite yet. And everyone's talking about this comet that is about to hit at noon. And um, we know that this um, Jim, this messenger has um, low sort of uh, work because he's the one chosen to go down into the vaults. It's not a very pleasant place to retrieve some documents. And you see the gothic-like description here of how he goes down beneath the, the living world on, um, on the street, on Broadway Street. He goes uh, into the blackness and silence beneath the lowest cavern, into the bowels of the earth, under the world. So let's see where this is going. He drew a long breath as he threw back the last great iron door and stepped into the fetid slime within. Here at last was peace, and he groped moodily forward. A great rat leaped past him and cobwebs crept across his face. He felt carefully around the room, shelf by shelf, um, on the muddied floor, and in crevice and corner, nothing. Then he went back to the far end where somehow the wall felt different. He sounded and pushed and pried, nothing. He started away. Then something brought him back. He was sounding and working again when suddenly the whole black wall swung as on mighty hinges and blackness yawned beyond. He peered in. 
It was evidently a secret vault, some hiding place of the old bank unknown in newer times. He entered hesitant, hesitatingly. It was a long, narrow room with shelves and at the far end, an old iron chest. On a high shelf lay the two missing volumes of records and others. He put them carefully aside and stepped to the chest. It was old and strong and rusty. He looked at the vast and old-fashioned lock and flashed his light on the hinges. They were deeply encrusted with rust. Looking about, he found a bit of iron and began to pry. The rust had eaten a hundred years and it had gone deep. Slowly, wearily, the old lid lifted and with a last low groan laid bare its treasure and he saw the dull sheen of gold. Boom! A low, grounding, grinding, reverberating crash struck upon his ear. He started up and looked about. Let me just... Oh, here it is. Sorry. Um, he started up and looked about. All was black and still. He groped for his light and swung it about him. Then he knew. The great stone door had swung to. He forgot the gold and looked death squarely in the face. Then with a sigh, he went methodically to work. The cold sweat stood on his forehead, but he searched, pounded, pushed, and worked until after what seemed endless hours, his hand struck a cold bit of metal and the great door swung again harshly on its hinges. And then striking against something soft and heavy, stopped. He had just room to squeeze through there lay the body of the vault clerk, cold and stiff. He stared at it and then felt sick and nauseated. The air seemed unaccountably foul with a strong peculiar odor. He stepped forward, clutched at the air and fell faintly across the corpse. So Jim had to go inside this vault, deep below the surface to retrieve some documents, but what he found instead was an old rusty chest. He opened it and he saw gold inside, probably gold that had been forgotten there in this bank. Um, but all of a sudden there was a loud boom reverberating uh, uh, across the building and the door closed. And remember he was in complete darkness so he had to grope around and finally he found um, the door, the doorknob. He opened it, could squeeze through and um, on his way out of this uh, vault, he stepped onto the corpse of a guard. So something happened. Let's see. And there was a terrible, terrible odor in the air. He awoke with a sense of horror leaped from the body and groped up the stairs, calling to the guard. The watchman sat as if asleep, with the gate swinging free. With one glance at him, the messenger hurried up to the sub-vault. In vain he called to the guards. His voice echoed and re-echoed weirdly. 
Up into the great basement he rushed. Here another guard lay prostrate on his face, cold and still. Fear arose in the messenger's heart. He dashed up to the cellar floor, up into the bank. The stillness of death lay everywhere and everywhere bowed, bent and stretched the silent forms of men. The messenger paused and glanced about. He was not a man easily moved, but the sight was appalling. Robbery and murder, he whispered slowly to himself as he saw the twisted, oozy mouth of the president where he lay half buried on his desk. Then a new thought seized him. If they found him here alone with all this money and all these dead men, what would his life be worth? He glanced about, tipped, tiptoed cautiously to a side door and again looked behind. Quietly, he turned the latch and stepped out into Wall Street. So he was for some time trapped within this um, room, this vault um, beneath the surface. And when he goes out, he sees that everyone is dead. And a fear, horror starts to build within him. And he suddenly realizes that if someone arrives, if the police arrives, for instance, and sees him there with that amount of money uh, from um, the bank and all the people dead around him, that he could get in serious trouble. Who would believe his word? Um, so he decides to go outside into Wall Street. How silent the street was. Not a soul was stirring, and yet it was high noon. Wall Street, Broadway. He glanced almost wildly up and down, then across the street, and as he looked, a sickening horror froze in his limbs. With a choking cry of utter fright, he lunged leaned giddily against the cold building and stared helplessly at the sight. In the great stone doorway, a hundred men and women and children lay crushed and twisted and jammed, forced into that great gaping doorway like a refuse in a can, as if in one wild frantic rush to safety, they had rushed and ground themselves to death. Slowly the messenger crept along the walls, wetting his parched mouth and trying to comprehend stilling the tremor in his limbs and the rising terror in his heart. He met a businessman, silk-hatted and frock-coated, who had crept too along that smooth wall and stood now stone dead with wonder written on his lips. The messenger turned his eyes hastily away and sought the curb. A woman leaned wearily against the signpost. Her head bowed motionless on her lace and silken bosom. Before her stood a streetcar, silent, and within but the messenger but the but the messenger but glanced and hurried on. It was too dark to see. A grimy newsboy sat in the gutter with the last edition in his uplifted hand. Danger screamed its black headlines. Warnings wired around the world. The comet's tail sweeps past us at noon. Deadly gas is expected. Close doors and windows, seek the cellar. The messenger read and staggered on. Far out from a window above, a girl lay with gasping face and sleevelets on her arms. On a store step sat a little sweet-faced girl looking upward towards the sky. 
and in the carriage by her lay, but the messenger looked on no longer. The cords gave way, the terror burst into his veins, and with one great gasping cry, he sprang desperately forward and ran. Ran as only the frightened run, shrieking and fighting the air until with one last wail of pain, he sank on the grass of Madison Square and lay prone and still. When he rose, he gave no glance at the still and silent forms on the benches, but going to a fountain, bathed his face. Then hiding himself in a corner away from the drama of death, he quietly gripped himself and thought the thing through. The comet had swept the earth and this was the end. Was everybody dead? He must search and see. He knew that he must steady himself and keep calm or he would go insane. First, he must go to a restaurant. He walked up Fifth Avenue to a famous hostelry and entered its gorgeous ghost-haunted halls. He beat back the nausea and seizing a tray from dead hands, hurried into the streets and ate ravenously, hiding to keep out the sights. Yesterday, they would not have served me, he whispered as he, as he forced the food down. So he realizes that the comet has swept away the earth and everyone apparently is dead. All he sees is death all over. Um, so he tries to calm himself and he tries to think things through and he decides to go to a restaurant. He goes to a restaurant on Fifth Avenue, very expensive restaurant, but now full of ghosts and dead hands. Um, and he eats and he thinks, well, only yesterday, if I had been here yesterday, they would have denied me uh, food in this establishment. They would not have served me. But now the comet has swept away um, humanity and with it all class distinctions, all race distinctions, he is the only surviving human being. That's very dark, hmm? this um, um, apocalyptic scenario. So let's continue. Then he started up the street, looking, peering, telephoning, ringing alarms. Silent, silent all. Was nobody, nobody, he dared not think the thought and hurried on. Can you imagine yourself alone in the world? All silence around you. That's creepy, huh? Then he, um, yes, suddenly he stopped still. He had forgotten. My God, how could he have forgotten? He must rush to the subway. Then he almost laughed. No, a car. He could find a Ford. He saw one. Gently, he lifted off its burden and took his place on the seat. He tested the throttle. There was gas. He glided off shivering and drove up the street. Everywhere stood, leaned, lounged, and lay the dead in grim and awful silence. On he ran past an automobile, wrecked and overturned, past another filled with a gay party whose smiles yet lingered on their death-struck lips. On past crowds and groups of cars, pausing by dead policemen. At 42nd Street, he had to detour to Park Avenue to avoid the dead congestion. He came back to Fifth Avenue at 57th and flew past the plaza and by the park with its hushed babies and silent throng. 
until, as he was rushing past 72nd Street, he heard a sharp cry and saw a living form leaning wildly up out an upper window. He gasped. The human voice sounded in his ears like the voice of God. So his first thought was, I, I need to find someone. I'm going to take the subway. And then he realized, wait, I'm all alone here. There are no more barriers. I don't need to take the subway. And the subway was not working, of course. I can take a car. So he just grabbed the Ford, what he could not have afforded in his uh, life pre-Comet. And he starts driving everywhere until he hears the cry of human voice. And it sounds like God in his ears. So he's not alone. Let's see who he finds. Hello? Hello? Help! In God's name! wailed the woman. There's a dead girl in here and a man and, and see yonder dead men lying in the street and dead horses. For the love of God, go and bring the officers. And the words trailed off into hysterical tears. He wheeled the car in a sudden circle, running over the still body of a child and leaping on the curb. Then he rushed up the steps and tried the door and rang violently. There was a long pause, but at last the heavy door swung back. They stared a moment in silence. She had not noticed before that he was a black man. He had not thought before, uh, he had not thought of her as white. She was a woman of perhaps 25, rarely beautiful and richly gowned, with darkly golden hair and jewels. Yesterday, he thought with bitterness, she would scarcely have looked at him twice. He would have been dirt beneath her silken feet. She stared at him. Of all the sorts of men she had pictured as coming to her rescue, she had not dreamt of one like him. Not that he was not human, but he dwelt in a world so far from hers, so infinitely far, that he seldom even entered her thought. Yet, as she looked at him, curiously, he seemed quite commonplace and usual. He was a tall, dark, working man of the better class, with a sensitive face trained to solidity and a poor man's clothes and hands. His face was soft and slow, and his manner at once cold and nervous, like fires long banked, but not out. Interesting, the scenario that uh, William Du Bois creates here, right? So the comet has swept away uh, humanity and the apparently Jim was the only person alive. And now we learn that he was a black man. And then we understand better what he mentioned before about um, not being looked at uh, before, of being, what was it that he says, few notice him, few ever notice him, save in a way that stung because of, of racial prejudice, right? Um, and then he hears the voice of a woman, so there is another survival. And this is a white woman, and they stare at each other for a moment because before, so we're talking about New York in the 1920s, okay? So before that moment, they would never have crossed paths before because they lived in so different social and racial spheres that they would not have uh, had any contact. Um, but here they are, the two survivals of a comet um, uh, disaster, a black man and a white woman. 
And then there's no more difference. They are simply human beings. There is no racial. Um, so um, this comet, this destruction of the world brings together uh, people and um, puts away or destroys barriers of class, of gender, of race. And the focus is on humanity, on what puts on what brings people together and not on what puts them apart. So these two people alone in the world. So a moment each paused and gauged the other. Then the thought of the dead world without rushed in and they started toward each other. What has happened? She cried. Tell me, nothing stirs. All is silence. I see the dead strewn before my windows as winnowed by the breath of God. And see, she dragged him through great silken hangings to where beneath the sheen of mahogany and silver, a little French maid lay stretched in quiet, everlasting sleep. And near her, a butler lay prone in his livery. The tears streamed down the woman's cheeks and she clung to his arm until the perfume of her breath swept his face and he felt the tremors racing through her body. I had been shut up in my dark room developing pictures of the comet which I took last night. When I came out, I saw the dead. What has happened? She cried again. He answered slowly, something, comet or devil, swept across the earth this morning and... Many are dead. Many, very many. I have searched and I have seen no other living soul but you. She gasped and they stared at each other. My father, she whispered. Where is he? He started for the office. Where is it? In the Metropolitan Tower. Leave a note for him here and come. Then he stopped. No, he said firmly. First, we must go to Harlem. Harlem, she cried. Then she understood. She tapped her foot at first impatiently. She looked back and shuddered. Then she came resolutely down the steps. There's a swifter car in the garage in the court, she said. I don't know how to drive it, he said. I do, she answered. In 10 minutes, they were flying to Harlem on the wind. The studs rose and raced like an airplane. They took the turn at 110th Street on two wheels and slipped with a shriek into 135th. He was gone but a moment. Then he returned and his face was gray. She did not look but said, you have lost somebody? I have lost everybody, he said simply. Unless he ran back and was gone several minutes Hours they seemed to her. Everybody, he said, and he walked slowly back with something film-like in his hand, which he stuffed into his pocket. So these two people are alone in the world and social roles have changed, right? Because uh, in the world pre-Comet, she, from a higher rank, a white woman, would have the authority over the situation, but now, these barriers no longer exist. And it is he, the working man, the black man, who takes authority and decides to go first to Harlem. You know, Harlem is a majority, majoritatively um, 
black neighborhood in New York. So it hints to the fact that he went first to check if his family was alive, if he could do anything for his relatives before moving on to check on her father. I'm afraid I was selfish, he said. But already the car was moving toward the park among the dark and lined dead of Harlem. The brown steel faces, the knotted hands, the homely garments and the silence. The wild and haunting silence. Out of the park and down Fifth Avenue they whirled. In and out among the dead they slipped and quivered, needing no sound of bell or horn until the great square metropolitan tower hove in sight. Gently, he laid the dead elevator boy aside. The car shot upward. The door of the office stood open. On the threshold lay the stenographer, and staring at her sat the dead clerk. The inner office was empty, but a note lay on the desk, folded and addressed, but unsent. Dear daughter, I've gone for a hundred miles pin in Fred's new Mercedes. Shall not be back before dinner. I'll bring Fred with me. J.B.H. Come, she cried nervously, we must search the city. Up and down, over and across, back again, on went that ghostly search. Everywhere was silence and death, death and silence. They hunted from Madison Square to Spite and Dowell. They rushed across the Williamsburg Bridge. They rushed across, they swept over Brooklyn. From the Battery and Morningside Heights, in, they scanned the river. Silence, silence everywhere and no human sign. Haggard and bedraggled, they puffed a third time slowly down Broadway, under the broiling sun, and at last stopped. He sniffed the air. An odor, a smell, and with the shifting breeze, a sickening stench filled their nostrils and brought its awful warning. The girl settled back helplessly in her seat. What can we do? she cried. It was his turn now to take the lead, and he did it quickly. The long-distance telephone, the telegraph and the cable, night rockets and then flight. She looked at him now with strength and confidence. He did not look like men, as she had always pictured men, but he acted like one, and she was content. In 15 minutes, they were at the central telephone exchange. As they came to the door, he stepped quickly before her and pressed her gently back as, she, as he closed it. She heard him moving to and fro and knew his burdens, the poor little burdens he bore. When she entered, he was alone in the room. The grim switchboard flashed its metallic face in cryptic, sphinx-like immobility. She seated herself on a stool and donned the, the bright earpiece. She looked at the mouthpiece. She had never looked at one so closely before. It was wide and black, pimpled with usage, inert, dead, almost sarcastic in its unfeeling curves. It looked, she beat back the thought, but it looked, it persisted in looking like she turned her head and found herself alone. One moment she was terrified, then she thanked him silent, silently for his delicacy and turned resolutely with a quick intaking of breath. Hello, she called in low tones. She was calling to the world. The world must answer. Would the world answer? Was the world silence?
She had spoken too low. Hello? She cried, full-voiced. She listened. Silence. Her heart beat quickly. She cried in clear, distinct, loud tones. Hello? 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 What was that worry? Surely, no. Was it the click of a receiver? So they decide to try to contact the world because they cannot, they don't see anyone else alive on the streets. So they rush to the central telephone exchange. She looks at the telephone, she looks at the switchboard. She had never seen it so close before because of course um, her life pre-comet, um, other people would do this for her, right? Um, and they call, they call the world, but there's silence. No one answers on the other side of the line. So they are alone. How do you like the story so far? Let me know. Um, the author creates this very good um, um, expectant uh, atmosphere, right? So let's see what's, what's going to happen. She bent close. She moved the pegs in the holes and called and called until her voice rose almost to a shriek and her heart hammered. It was as if she had heard the last flicker of creation and the evil was silence. Her voice dropped to a sob. She sat stupidly staring into the black and sarcastic mouthpiece and the thought came again. Hope lay dead within her. Yes, the cable and the rockets remained, but the world, she could not frame the thought or say the word. It was too mighty, too terrible. She turned toward the door with a new fear in her heart. For the first time, she seemed to realize that she was alone in the world with a stranger, with something more than a stranger, with a man alien in blood and culture, unknown, perhaps unknowable. It was awful. She must escape. She must fly. He must not see her again. Who knew what awful thoughts? She gathered her silken skirts deftly about her young, smooth limbs, listened and glided into a side hall. A moment she shrank back. The hall lay filled with dead women. Then she leaped to the door and tore at it with bleeding fingers until it swung wide. She looked out. He was standing at the top of the alley, silhouetted, tall and black, motionless. Was he looking at her or away? She did not know. She did not care. She simply leaped and ran ran until she found herself alone amid the dead and the tall ramparts of towering buildings. She stopped. She was alone. Alone. Alone on the streets. Alone in the city. Perhaps alone in the world. There crept in upon her the sense of deception, of creeping hands behind her back, of silent moving things she could not see of voices hushed in fearsome conspiracy. She looked behind and sideways, started at strange sounds and heard still stranger until every nerve within her stood sharp and quivering, stretched to scream at the barest touch. She whirled and flew back, whimpering like a child until she found that narrow alley again and the dark silent figure silhouetted at the top. She stopped and rested. Then she walked silently toward him, looked at him timidly, but he said nothing as he handed her into the car. 
Her voice caught as she whispered, not that. And he answered slowly, no, not that. They climbed into the car. She bent forward on the wheel and sobbed with great, dry, quivering sobs as they flew toward the cable office on the east side, leaving the world of wealth and prosperity for the world of poverty and work. In the world behind them were death and silence, grave and grim, almost cynical, but always decent. Here it was hideous. It clothed itself in every ghastly form of terror, struggle, hate and suffering. It lay wreathed in crime and squalor, greed and lust. Only in its dread and awful silence was it like to death everywhere. Yet, as the two, flying and alone, looked upon the horror of the world, slowly, gradually, the sense of an all-enveloping death deserted them. They seemed to, work, to move in a world silent and asleep, not dead. They moved in quiet reverence, lest somehow they wake these sleeping forms who had at last found peace. They moved in some solemn worldwide Friedhof, above which some mighty arm had waved its magic hand, magic wand. All nature slept until, until, and quick with the same startling thought, they looked in, into each other's eyes. He ashen and she crimson with unspoken thought. To both, the vision of a mighty beauty, of vast unspoken things, swelled in their souls, but they put it away. So they're searching the world, they find nothing. In the wealth neighbor, wealthy neighborhoods, nothing. In the poor neighborhoods, nothing. Everyone's the same in death. Uh, and they are the only living beings. And at first, the woman panics and she wants to run away, she wants to escape. But she suddenly realizes that he is the only man, the only person there who could help her or who could be with her. The rest of the world is gone, is dead. Um, and at this point, they look at each other with unspoken thought. A man and a woman, the only, the only ones left. And a thought occurs to him, we can only... Um, um, think, um, infer what this could be, and they're probably thinking that they will have to repopulate the earth. She, a white woman, and he, a black man, one thing that, one relationship that would not have been socially accepted in 1920s New York before the comet. So you see how it um, changes the world upside down. And they look at this um, mighty beauty this vision of unspoken things swelled in their souls, but they put it away. Great dark coils of wire came, upon, came up from the earth and down from the sun and entered this low layer of witchery. The gathered lightnings of the world centered here, binding with beams of light the ends of the earth. The door escaped on the gloom within. He paused on the threshold. Do you know the code? She asked. I know the call for help. We use it formerly at the bank. She hardly heard. She heard the lapping of the waters far below, the dark and restless waters, the cold and luring waters as they called. He stepped within. Slowly she walked to the wall where the water called below and stood and waited. 
Long she waited and he did not come. Then with a start she saw him too, standing beside the black waters. Slowly he removed his coat and stood there silently. She walked quickly to him and laid her hand on his arm, something that would not have been possible prior to the comment. She um, laid her hand on his, arm, on his arm. He did not start or look. The waters lapped on in luring, deadly rhythm. He pointed down to the waters and said quietly, the world lies beneath the waters now. May I go? She looked into his stricken, tired face and a great pity surged within her heart. She answered in a voice clear and calm. No. So he's asking if he may go under the water, meaning that um, he was probably thinking about committing suicide. Um, and he asks her, should I do that? Which he says, no, and touches his arm. No, don't do that. As an, um, a confirmation that they're going to go through that together. Um, upward they turn toward life again. And he sees the wheel. The world was darkening to twilight and a great gray pall was falling mercifully and gently on the sleeping dead. The ghastly glare of reality seemed replaced with a dream of some vast romance. The girl lay silently back as the motor whizzed along and looked half consciously for the elf queen to wave life into this dead world again. She forgot to wonder at the quickness with which he had learned to drive her car. It seemed natural. And then, as they whirled and swung into Madison Square and at the door of the Metropolitan Tower, she gave a low cry and her eyes were great. Perhaps she had seen the Elf Queen. The man led her to the elevator of the tower and deftly they ascended. In her father's office, they gathered rugs and chairs and he wrote a note and laid it on the desk. Then they ascended to the roof and he made her comfortable. For a while, she rested and sang to dreamy sonolence, watching the worlds above and wondering. Below lay the dark shadows of the city, and afar was the shining of the sea. She glanced at him timidly as he set foot before her and took a shawl and wound her in it, touching her reverently yet tenderly. She looked up at him with thankfulness in her eyes, eating what he served. He watched the city. She watched him. He seemed very human, very near now. And it, this is probably the first time that she's looking at him or someone uh, like him um, humanly. And she probably suddenly realizes how prejudiced she had been her whole life because of the way society was built, is still built, right? And she says, have you had to work hard? She asked softly, knowing that they led very, very different lives, right? Have you had to work hard? Always, he said. I have always been idle, she said. I was rich. I was poor, he almost echoed. The rich and the poor are met together. She began and he finished. The Lord is the maker of them all. Yes. She said slowly, and how foolish our human distinctions seem now, looking down to the great dead city stretched below, swimming in unlightened shadows. Yes, I was not human yesterday, he
he said. How powerful this sentence, huh? I was not human yesterday because of um, the way society was built on uh, social and racial prejudice. It was not considered a human. She looked at him and your people were not my people, she said, but today, she paused. He was a man, no more, but he was in some larger sense, a gentleman, sensitive, kindly, chivalrous, everything save his hands and his face. Yet yesterday, death, the leveler, he muttered, and the revealer, she whispered gently, rising to her feet with great eyes. He turned away and after fumbling a moment, sent a rocket into the darkening air. It arose, shrieked and flew up a slim path of light and scattering its stars abroad, dropped on the city below. She scarcely noticed it. A vision of the world had risen before her. Slowly, the mighty prophecy of her destiny overwhelmed her. Above the dead past hovered the angel of Annunciation. She was no mere woman. She was neither high nor low, white nor black, rich nor poor. She was primal woman, mighty mother of all men to come and bride of life. She looked upon the man beside her and forgot all else but his manhood, his strong, vigorous manhood, his sorrow and sacrifice. She saw him glorified. He was no longer a thing apart, a creature below, a strange outcast of another clime and blood, but her brother humanity incarnate, son of God and great all father of the race to be. You see how they connect and how all distinctions are erased and they become the primal men and women, the ones who will perpetuate humanity, regardless of where they come from, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of how much money they had before. It doesn't matter. He did not glimpse the glory in her eyes, but stood looking outward toward the sea and sending rocket after rocket unto the unanswering darkness. Dark purple clouds lay banked and billowed in the west. Behind them and all around, the heavens glowed in dim weird radiance that suffused the darkening world and made almost a minor music. Suddenly, as though gathered back in some vast hand, the great cloud curtain fell away. Low on the horizon lay a long white star mystic, wonderful, and from it fled upward to the pole like some wan bridal veil, a pale white sheet of flame that lighted all the world and deemed the star. In fascinated silence, the man gazed at the heavens and dropped his rockets to the floor. Memories of memories stirred to life in the dead recesses of his mind. The shackles seemed to rattle and fall from his soul. Up from the crest and crushing and cringing of his case leaped the lone majesty of kings long dead. He arose within the shadows, tall, straight and stern, with power in his eyes and ghostly scepters hovering to his grasp. It was as though some mighty pharaoh lived again or curled a Syrian lord. He turned and looked about and looked upon the lady and found her gazing straight at him. Silently, immovably, they saw each other face to face, eye to eye, 
Their souls lay naked to the night. It was not lust, it was not love. It was some vaster, mightier thing that needed neither touch of body nor thrill of soul. It was a thought divine, splendid. Slowly, noiselessly, they moved toward each other. The heavens above, the seas around, the city grim and dead below. He loomed from out the velvet shadows, vast and dark. Pearl white and slender, she shone beneath the stars. She stretched her jeweled hands abroad. He lifted up his mighty arms and they cried each to the other, almost with one voice, the world is dead. So you see how they become, they form this connection that is more significant and vaster than lust or love. It is a thought divine, splendid. It's the future of humankind um, perpetuated by themselves, the, the two of them. And you see how the author emphasizes the symbols of their previous um, social and racial background. Uh, so for instance, he um, uh, emphasizes that he, um, the velvet shadows, vast and dark, and his mighty arms, because he is a black working man, and she, pearl white and slender, and stretching her jeweled hands. So she's a white um, woman of uh, a higher social class. But it doesn't matter anymore. All these symbols do not matter anymore. And they say to each other, the world is dead. Long live the honk honk. Hoarse and sharp, the cry of a motor drifted clearly up from the silence below. They started backward with a cry and gazed upon each other with eyes that faltered and fell with blood that boiled. Honk, 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 came the mad cry again. And almost from their feet, a rocket blazed into the air and scattered its stars upon them. She covered her eyes with her hands and her shoulders heaved. He dropped and bowed, groped blindly on his knees about the floor. A blue flame spluttered lazily after an age, and she heard the scream of an answering rocket as it flew. Then they stood still as death, looking to opposite ends of the earth. Clang, crash, clang. The roar and ring of swift elevators shooting upward from below made the great tower tremble. A murmur and babble of voices swept in upon the light. All over the once dead city, the lights blinked, flickered and flamed. And then with a sudden clanging of doors, the entrance to the platform was filled with men and one with white and flying hair rushed to the girl and lifted her to his breast. My daughter, he sobbed. Behind him hurried a younger, comelier man, carefully clad in motor costume, who bent above the girl with passionate solicitude and gazed into her staring eyes until they narrowed and dropped and her face flushed deeper and deeper crimson. Julia, he whispered, my darling, I thought you were gone forever. She looked up at him with strange searching eyes. Friend, she murmured almost vaguely, is the world gone? Only New York, he answered. It is terrible, awful. You know, but you, how did you escape? How have you endured this horror? Are you well, unharmed? Unharmed, she said. And this man here, 
he asked, encircling her drooping form with one arm and turning toward the black man. Suddenly he stiffened and his hand flew to his hip. Why? He snarled. It's a, it's a black man, Julia. Has he, has he dared? She lifted her head and looked at her late companion curiously and then dropped her eyes with a sigh. He has dared all to rescue me, she said quietly, and I thank him much. But she did not look at him again. As the couple turned away, the father drew a roll of bills from his pockets. Here, my good fellow, he said, thrusting the money into the man's hands. Take that. So you see now there are more people alive. The social barriers are, and racial barriers are back up. And the first thought that the um, fiance of the, the woman has when, she, when he sees the black man there is, has he dared to harm you? So you see what it, um, how uh, Du Bois um, exposes the prejudice of society. And the father wants to thank him by giving him money. And all of a sudden they don't look at each other anymore because that moment of connection has passed. Jim Davis came the answer, hollowed voice. Well, Jim, I thank you. I've always liked your people. If you ever want a job, call on me. And they were gone. The crowd poured up and out of the elevators, talking and whispering. Who was it? Are they alive? How many? Two. Who was saved? A white girl and a black man. There she goes. A black man? Where is he? Let's lynch. Shut up. He's all right. He saved her. Saves hell. He had no business. Here he comes. Into the glare of the electric lights, the colored man moved slowly with the eyes of those that walk and sleep. Well, what do you think of that? Cried a bystander. Of all New York, just a white girl and a black man. The colored man heard nothing. He stood silently beneath the glare of the light, gazing at the money in his hand and shrinking as he gazed. Slowly he put his other hand into his pocket and brought out a baby's film cap and gazed again. A woman mounted to the platform and looked about, shading her eyes. She was brown, small and toil-worn and in one arm lay the corpse of a dark baby. The crowd parted and her eyes fell on the colored man with a cry she tottered toward him. Jim, he whirled and with a sob of joy caught her in his arms. And that's how the story ends. So fantastic, right? Tell me what you think of this story. Um, how Du Bois creates this dystopian um, scenario, alternative scenario for New York and how this catastrophe um, destroys all barriers of uh, social class and race. And for a moment, this black man and this white woman, they have a most, the deepest, most significant um, connection as the only two um, human beings left in the world until they realize they are not alone and a group of white people come and um, reinforce this social and racial barriers again and they just leave and he's there um, so she uh, the white woman is reunited with her fiance and her father but they do not even bother to ask him how he feels or who he has lost and at the end we see that he's uh, holding the picture 
the photograph of a baby and that he reuni reunites with his uh, wife or partner but that they have lost their baby so um, uh, very very difficult moment for them a moment of loss while for her it was a moment of reunion right so it's a it's a, a tough story right makes us think but i hope you enjoyed it so here we are i hope you've enjoyed this story by william du bois and all the other stories in this literary project the seven days of halloween short stories are a great way to navigate through different authors and literary genres don't you think in these past few episodes we've read Roald Dahl, Guy de Maupassant, Anton Chekhov, Edith Wharton, Edgar Allan Poe and William Du Bois. What an enriching literary experience. So what about joining a new literary journey through short stories? I invite you to check out the online course Reading Short Stories which is starting soon on the 6th of November. In this course, you read and study five different short stories written by five different authors in five weeks. It's a great way to be acquainted with different writers and writing styles. Take a look at the website booksandculture.club for more information. I'd love to welcome you to our international community of book lovers. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature.